Our gospel lesson today is taken from the book of John, chapter 3, verses 1 through 17. Familiar words probably for many of you. So join me as we hear God's word read together. Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know you are, you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How can someone be born when they are old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, You must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and you do not understand these things? Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know, and we testify to what we have seen. But still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things, and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. This may not have happened to you, but maybe, perhaps it has. But have you ever gone about a task all the wrong way and the whole time not even realize you're doing it wrong? Let me give you an example. At least once, maybe more, I've tried to loosen a bolt on a plumbing fixture and I've wrestled with it with no result. It just doesn't budge. Just when I think it's gotten the best of me and out of desperation, I finally decide, let me try and twist this the other way. Well, after some work on that going the other way, the fitting surprisingly begins to loosen. You see, sometimes certain bolts and fittings are threaded the opposite way. And sometimes you just don't know until you try turning it the other way. So, if you're turning it the opposite way, it doesn't matter the effort you give it. The fitting just won't loosen. In fact, you just may be making it fit tighter. Or, students, have you ever discovered you were doing, say, a math problem the wrong way? 
Perhaps you're using the wrong formula. This is especially true for me when I had to deal with word problems. I'd spend what seemed like hours trying to work through and solve a word problem, and the answer would just never come out right. It wasn't until I reread the, the word problem a second or a third or maybe even a fourth time, or until someone else pointed out a nuance, a subtle nuance in the wording, that I discovered I was doing the whole thing wrong. Well, what a relief it is when you discover the bolt that you're struggling with simply needs to be turned the other way. Or the math problem you're struggling with has less to do with your ability to add and subtract, but has everything to do with how you read the question. I think this is where we find Nicodemus in John chapter 3, perplexed with how Jesus' power and signs fit with the religion that he has practiced his whole life. And since we've all had moments in our life when we've discovered that we are going about things the wrong way, I think we can relate. To review, Nicodemus was a Pharisee and a Jewish leader in a time of political upheaval in Jerusalem. Pharisees were a part of the power structure in Jerusalem, or at least in the ways that the Roman government would allow them. And they were very keen on keeping every dot and tittle of the Jewish law. Later, in John chapter 7, we learn that Nicodemus was also a member of the Sanhedrin. This is the highest ruling body and court of justice for the Jewish people at the time. The exchange between Nicodemus and Jesus is unique to the Gospel of John. The encounter comes after the narrator discloses at the end of chapter 2 that while many believed in the name of Jesus because they saw the signs that he was doing, Jesus did not fully trust their motives or trust their reaction. So Nicodemus, it appears, represents this group of people since he seeks confirmation that Jesus' signs come from God in the following chapter, chapter 3. And that's how we find this encounter, under the cloak of night, unfolding. Nicodemus comes bearing the assumptions of his culture. His culture believes that God blesses those who obey the letter of the law. For the Pharisees, the Torah is about rule-keeping, rather than a picture, living into a picture of a merciful God who saves a people in spite of their impoverishment. It's as if the law becomes a challenge to these folks, a type of reality game a la today's Survivor TV show, where the most pious observers win. In his conversation with Jesus, Nicodemus may be actually trying to size up his latest competition. Perhaps Nicodemus' initial question is meant to flatter Jesus. We know you're a teacher from God, No one could perform these signs if God were not with him. It's as if Nicodemus is warning the inside information, the secrets, the how do you do it, often shared between those who are masters in their areas of expertise. It sounds like an innocent enough question, doesn't it? Obviously, God is with you, Nicodemus says. You couldn't do this alone. But it seems Jesus sees beyond Nicodemus' flattery to his heart and to the heart of the culture that has produced his line of thinking. A kind of thinking that encourages a controlling posture toward life. And I'm in charge kind of attitude. 
Knowing this, Jesus' answer surprises and stumps Nicodemus and introduces a key concept found throughout the other three Gospels, but only called by name three times in the Gospel of John. And that is the kingdom of God. Jesus tells Nicodemus that no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. Or, as other translators have it, born from above. These two phrases take Nicodemus by surprise because it's not what he's seeking. His religious worldview's threads run in a different direction than Jesus's. So he tightens his bolt even tighter by missing the point of Jesus's riddle, wondering what in the world he must mean by being born a second time. And I wonder what rebirth means to our modern ears. Do our threads run the same way that Jesus's does? To get a better handle on being born again, we have to investigate this phrase alongside Jesus' concept of the kingdom of God. After all, that's what is in store for each of us who are born again. Luckily, the three other Gospels, they have a lot to say about this subject, about both of them. So in Matthew 18, we find Jesus' disciples wondering, I wonder who is the greatest in the kingdom of God. I bet they were guessing someone like Moses or Elisha or David, someone revered throughout their history. Yet Jesus calls a child to him and says, Truly, disciples, I tell you, unless you change and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of God. And in a similar scene in Mark 10, the disciples try to shoo the children away, but Jesus stops them, saying, It is to such as these that the kingdom of God belongs. He goes on to say that whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will never enter it. Throughout the Gospels, Jesus tells parables about this seemingly elusive kingdom. People go to great lengths to find it and they give up much to live inside it. The kingdom of God, it seems, is both easy enough that a child can find it and enter it and difficult enough that it requires giving up all that you have in order to reside there. Either way, it is evident that the kingdom of God is a gift and isn't something that you can earn. Throughout the Gospels, Jesus surprises his audience by turning their customs and expectations upside down. Jesus' rebirth language as a precondition for participation in God's kingdom is in the same line of reasoning, pointing us to a greater lesson. Here Jesus is proclaiming that God's kingdom isn't accessed or brought about through human strength or might at all. Rather, it is available by the way of childlike faith, through the letting go of the very things we think we need in order to secure A happy life. The born-again metaphor, then, speaks to something that is just beyond us, that we cannot grasp or can control, but which we are all invited to dwell. And dwelling in God's kingdom isn't a passive thing. We shouldn't mistake rebirth to be a static moment or a one-time event, which we evangelicals sometimes seem to be fixated on. Instead, it is It is both something that happens to us 
and something that we learn to look for. It happens when we give up our control over life. What Paul refers to in the Romans text that Nicholas read for us earlier as life according to the flesh. So we give that up for something we can't control, but we long to be a part of. And since the culture we live and navigate in is constantly telling us to take control and do it ourselves, to look out for your well-being first, it's a constant battle. No wonder so many struggle with anxiety. We need the alternative community of the church reminding us of the kingdom in which we first and foremost belong to. We need the daily and weekly practicing together of the identifying markers of such a kingdom. And this, I believe, is the crux of the message for us today. Recognizing what it means to be born again and what it looks like to live in God's kingdom. We often point to our profession of faith as the moment we are saved and we are born again. Our profession, in fact, is a very big deal. But it is our starting point and not our destination. When we make such a profession our destination, it becomes more about checking off a box, of adding another accomplishment to our resume. The accomplishment, the resume building, is what Nicodemus had in mind when he sought out Jesus. What he learned instead is that living in God's kingdom isn't about accomplishment at all. Rather, it is all about a relationship. It's with this new understanding in mind that John is able to sum up Jesus' mission in John three sixteen and 17, with those familiar words. And that is to do for God's people what we can't do for ourselves. Much like the healing power of the bronze snake in the desert, and this is found a story in, in the book of Numbers, Jesus' self-giving death is the only lens in which we can understand God and God's purpose for creation. That God would submit to being put to death at the hands of power-lusting people, people yet created in His image, is a love that we have trouble imagining on our own. And still God sees us as redeemable, worth investing His energy in, and worthy of representing his glory. It's precisely why we need a rebirth from above to even be able to grasp it, much less live into it. And this is where the Holy Spirit enters. God's Spirit that animated Jesus is made available to the whole God-hating world by a victorious and resurrected Jesus. And for those who by God's grace receive it, Nothing short of rebirth occurs. This initial rebirth claims us for God for all time. But being claimed by God means you're in a relationship with God. And we all know relationships change us. People involved in real relationships devote lots of time getting to know one another and learning about one another. Opening our lives to God means gradually taking on the character of God. Each time we willingly submit to God's reign and thus God's worldview, our view of the world changes. We begin to love what God loves 
and are saddened by what makes God sad. Now, I've been trying to explain this kind of love to you and how it changes us, but explaining this rationally can only get us so far. So I think stories do a better job of explaining this truth. And this is where I want to conclude. I offer you two stories. Lewis and Clark were two Virginians who were commissioned by President Thomas Jefferson to find a water route to the Pacific Ocean, one that would connect the Gulf of Mexico to the Pacific. They, along with others, with limited research, determined that the Missouri River connected closely with this other river out west that would empty into the Pacific Ocean. That river now is known as the Columbia River. And everyone knew this water route existed. They just hadn't yet figured out or been there to show just how those rivers connected. They'd even printed maps with these two rivers already on the map, kind of close to each other, just waiting for someone like Lewis and Clark to go and verify what they already knew. So Lewis and Clark and their team started their journey out of St. Charles, Missouri, and spent 18 months paddling upstream on the Missouri River. They even spent a winter with the Mandan tribe in North Dakota. And on August 12, 1805, the group found themselves on the border of what is now Montana and Idaho, and at the end of the Missouri River, which at that point was little more than a stream. They walked up to the top of the Lemhi Pass carrying their canoes, and believed that they would be able to take those canoes over that pass, and within a few miles find that other river, place their canoes in the Columbia River, and then coast downstream to the Pacific. But instead of water, what they found were 300 miles of rocky mountains. Now back during the previous winter, the Mandan tribe had confirmed that there was in fact another river over there to the west. But there were mountains in the way. But Virginians, Lewis and Clark, had no mental picture, no way of knowing what these rocky mountains looked like, nor how vast they were. But at that moment, at the Limhi Pass, they found that years of research, maps, education, and their imagination was wrong they had a decision to make. You see, they were trained as water guides, and they were good at running rivers. And 14,000-foot mountains stood in their way. Would they give up and go home, having realized there is no direct water route? Or would they drop their canoes and everything they knew and humbly move forward, realizing that there may be something even greater to discover? like a whole new world. One team member wrote in his journal about that moment, those were some of the most horrible mountains we ever beheld. Sure they were. Perhaps he thought he would be carrying their canoes with them over those mountains. But rather, they were confronted with leaving behind the very things they were good at and giving up their expertise. What they discovered at that moment was the world ahead of them looked so different than the world that they were leaving behind. Meriwether Lewis was a man of the Enlightenment. He was privileged in education and opportunity. 
he served as President Johnson's personal secretary. He basically lived in the White House. Yet when he crossed the Limhi Pass, he had to leave his privilege, his education behind and begin again and become a learner once more. Friends, for Christians and non-believers alike, being born again may be like thinking all we have to do is hike the Blue Ridge Mountains, but then being confronted for the first time with the Rocky Mountains. Our training may have sufficed for those Appalachian hills, but a wiser, stronger guide is needed for negotiating the Rockies. And while these mountains are intimidating, the adventure of discovering a new reality is also so very compelling. God's kingdom is like the Rocky Mountains, and God's Holy Spirit is our Sacagawea. Well, I have another story out of many that I could relate. <clears throat> this one is told by Dr. John Powell. He's a law professor at UC Berkeley. He's an internationally recognized expert in the areas of civil rights and civil liberties. Recently, he was interviewed by Krista Tippett, host of On Being, a podcast I often listen to, and was addressing what he believes it means to be human. These are his words. I'll tell you a story, he says. I went to Stanford. I was one of the co-founders of the Black Student Union at Stanford. And we had a meeting. And in that meeting, we decided that there were definitely some good white people out there. But not that many. And it took a lot of energy to find them. The transaction cost of finding good white people was just way too high. So we decided, okay, let's just stop trying to find these. Let's not relate to white people. And as I left the meeting, it was about noon, and I was walking across Stanford. And I don't know if you've actually been to Stanford, but the center part of Stanford is usually very busy, especially at noon. And there's always people teeming about. And I'm walking back across campus in this area, and there's nobody there. It's empty. And all the time I was at Stanford, I've never seen that part of campus like that. And then there's this one woman walking toward me. I've never seen this woman before, and I never saw her again. And as she's walking toward me, I notice she's blind. And she has a cane. And she walks into a maze of bicycles. And I said, oh, that's too bad. And as she turns, knocks down bicycles, she starts panicking. And I'm thinking, that's really sad. But we just made this agreement. It's not my problem. I keep walking. She turns again, and she knocks down more bicycles. And finally, I can't walk past her. And I go over, and I take her out of the maze of bicycles, and then she goes on her way. And I go back to that meeting, and I say, I can't do it. I can't adhere to that agreement. And to me, that was one of my defining moments. John Powell had a rebirth moment in that encounter with a blind woman he admits he tried to avoid. But something I'd like to think was the Holy Spirit wouldn't let, her, let him pass her by. And that, I think, is the answer Jesus gives Nicodemus on that evening encounter. Nicodemus, like other characters in the Bible, may have been looking for affirmation that what he was doing was the right way to inclusion in God's kingdom. But what he was given was the beginning of a new perspective. 
a new perspective we see growing in Nicodemus in two other scenes in John's Gospels. But for now, it is enough for Nicodemus to know the kingdom of God isn't entered based on his credentials. It's based on who you know, who he knows. That is, Jesus the Christ. And in knowing Jesus, your whole life will be turned upside down. And sometimes it will be hard, but always it will be worth the sacrifice. Professor Powell ends his interview with the following statement about human relationships. I think it also beautifully sums up what Jesus was describing to Nicodemus. Powell says, I think being human is about being in the right kind of relationships. I think being human is a process. It's not something that we are just born with. We actually learn to celebrate our connection, learn to celebrate our love. And the thing about it, if you suffer, it does not imply love. Suffering does not imply love. But if you love, that does imply suffering. So part of what being human means is to love and to suffer. To suffer with, through, and with compassion, and not to suffer against. If we can hold that space big enough, we also will have joy and fun, even as we suffer. And suffering will no longer divide us. And to me, that's sort of the human journey.